Hey everybody, Andy here. No fun, stupid joke intro this week. You know, we had a lot of episodes saved up in the backlog before KubeCon that we had pre-recorded and edited, then we had a bunch of guests since KubeCon, but it feels irresponsible or just tone-deaf to go on making our little podcast about a children's trading card game without at least acknowledging the attempt at genocide going on right now in the Gaza Strip. I know that you most likely don't tune into this show for political takes, and we don't make a habit of sharing our politics on the show, though honestly even calling this a political issue, I think, suggests that there are like two reasonable sides to this conflict, which there's not. There is only one reasonable, moral, humanitarian perspective on this which is to say that the people of Gaza and the people of Palestine should be free and share equal rights with the other people living in the region. So I think it's just important that we say that we stand with Palestine. We will always stand with the oppressed and against the oppressor. And some of you might be asking, why this atrocity, right? I mean, there's lots of atrocities going on in the world, so why mention this one and not one of the myriad others? And the main reason is because I'm disturbed by the portrayal of this military occupation by the mainstream media in the United States. If you're not engaged politically, you're likely absorbing a lot of background ideas culturally around what's going on in Israel-Palestine. You might think there's a war going on right now in Israel-Palestine because that's what the mainstream media would have you believe. A war between two sides. And that's just not the case. In a war, one side does not control the other side's electricity, flow of medical supplies, supply of food, supply of fresh water, borders. This is a military occupation. There is violence flowing both directions, but there is only power flowing one direction, and that is Israel exerting its power over the captive population of the Gaza Strip. So do not accept false equivalencies you hear in the media or from people in your community. Like some people listening to me right now might suggest that it's unfair of me to be critical of Israel while not also criticizing Hamas. To which I would say it doesn't matter what I, an American, think of Hamas. They're not accountable to me. They're not accountable to anybody. Moreover, I'm not in the habit of telling immiserated, suffering people with no reasonable democratic recourse what an appropriate response is to their pain, their grief, their suffering at the hands of a colonial power. Israel, however, is an internationally recognized government. They are accountable, at least theoretically, to many international bodies. My tax dollars, as a United States citizen, in part, are paying for the bombs and munitions bombarding the Gaza Strip right now. So yes, my criticism is pointed squarely at Israel. And it's not a criticism of individual behavior. It's a criticism of power structures. A criticism of one group of people having effectively unilateral control over another. This is something I've cared about for a while. A key moment for me was watching a documentary in 2011 called Five Broken Cameras. That documentary was filmed in the West Bank, not the Gaza Strip, but it's extremely eye-opening nonetheless. And I, I do recommend it. I'm also going to put a bunch of links in the show notes to podcasts discussing this topic in more detail. One especially I want to call out is a very long interview with Norman Finkelstein, who is 
almost certainly the world's most preeminent academic on the Israel-Palestine conflict. So if you're looking to inform yourself or hear from people that are very informed, that's a great place to start. Anyway, that's it. Just uh, couldn't be a silent party to the Western denial of this ongoing genocide. Thanks for tolerating a decidedly unfun intro and free Palestine. Great. Should we just dive in there? Let's do it. Hello. It's an episode of Lucky Paper Radio with me, Andy, and my co-host, Anthony, official user of Instagram, Maddox. Oh, yeah. I did an Instagram. I got bullied into doing it for the first time in 15 years. Because you've had an account forever, but you've literally never posted. Well, I, at some point, I like logged in a couple years ago. I was like, maybe I should go on Instagram and be like, oh, wait, I got hacked, and now I'm following a bunch of weird people, and uh, I have old posts you of got like hacked? moody Baltimore alleys, and I deleted those pictures. So you did post a while ago. Uh-huh. Then you cleared, you cleared the slate. Yes. And then for many years, you had no post. Now you just have Correct. the one, or do you have more than one now? I posted a second picture oh, of sh- noodles. I'm going to go like You didn't like right my now. noodles. Well, here's the thing. I don't actually use Instagram. Look, okay. here's the deal. I am like... I feel like as cynical as they come with regards to social media, but okay. I feel like you will get a lot out of posting your, like, if there's ever been a reasonable use case for Instagram, uh-huh, uh-huh. it is your beautiful cooking. You have thank a podcast you, where you. dozens of people have requested to know more about your cooking and follow your cooking adventures. Instagram is a visual medium. You take pictures of everything you cook already. I feel it's like true, this is a natural fit. Okay, fine. If you want to go check out my nudes, uh, <laughs> follow me on Instagram. The pro- so I feel like there's a couple. You got to give your you got to give your Instagram handle. I don't know what you it is. You can't just say follow me on Instagram. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes. It I don't know what it is. Is it Age Maddox? Probably. I'll figure it out right now. You keep talking about what the problem is. Well, I mean, I, one problem is I end up just like cooking the same thing over and over again a lot. So it's like I'm really trying to tweak the like chewiness of these noodles, and that doesn't necessarily translate. It'll just be like the same picture of noodles slightly different uh but fine i'm just gonna do it i'll just post those things the other issue is i'm not really interested in making instagram food like a lot of people spend a lot of time making very beautiful things that present in you know lots of different cool ways and look great but again i'm like really interested in let's focus on the texture of these noodles yeah uh you say these are problems these are not problems simply don't do these things okay fine like i I think one of the most toxic traits of social media is and there are you, many to choose from. Oh, there's so many to choose from. But it's like commodifying everything you do. Yes. And so just just don't care about it. Don't care about how many people like it. Don't care about making Instagramable content. Don't care about if people care about seeing the same noodles over and over again. Just make what you want to make, and the people that care about that will come out of the woodwork. It's really hard not to care. It's I mean, so hard not honestly, to care. Like, it's I was very hard not to care. I was on Twitter a fair amount uh, like when we were in college, whenever that was. And one of the reasons I kind of stopped was it just was like really frustrating and unhealthy just to be like, yeah, I don't actually care. But when this post gets a few less likes, when as soon as you put a number on things, it's really hard for your brain not to try and optimize that. And you want just line like, to go up. Not, not fun. Yeah. So I don't know. I've been, I've been on Twitter more. I've tweeted some noodles, but it is hard to, it like takes an effort to be like, I'm just not going to care about that number. Well, I wish there was a way. That number. I was going to say, I wish there was a way number. to just like turn off all metrics, but obviously mm-hmm. the social media purveyors are not motivated to give people this power yeah, yeah. anyway you should check out at ah maddox on instagram if you like anthony's nudes and you want to see more cooking posts of the same noodles repeatedly day over day until the texture gets just i also right. do cook other things but i mean your noodles are great why I why made, would you bother made, cooking anything else I made noodles for dinner yesterday i'm gonna eat more of them for lunch today it's gonna be great 
You made noodles for dinner yesterday, and then, if I'm not mistaken, you went to the Lost Caverns of Ixalan pre-release event at Don't Land Beyond in Baltimore. Did you know? What, what a segue. I sure <laughs> I'm did. I'm a professional. <laughs> Opened up six packs of the newest Magic the Gathering set. Built an awful, awful deck. And it was played awful. only two rounds and got the buy in the third round. So technically, I won a match, but these were certainly some games so of you went, Magic the Gathering. You went O2 buy drop? Correct. Yes. Okay. Well, at least you learned something, right? Ooh, hmm, did I learn something? You know what I learned? I learned that uh, Belligerent Yearling is the dumbest magic card they've ever made. I was, That's the I was like, Eldrazi trying, Mimic, but for dinosaurs, it's right? It's just a two-mana 3-2 three, two trample. I came into this trying... No, I didn't want to be salty, but boy, I lost literally every single one of my games to this particular card. It wasn't a lot of games uh, because of the buy, but what is this card? What is this card? It is the one I was talking about, but your problem is just that it's a 3-2 trample as oh, a baseline. To be fair, it also attacked me for 12 one time. Yeah. It was a little bit more than a 3-2 trample. Yeah, but, yeah this oh is boy. the uh, one in a red for 3-2 trample with whenever another dinosaur enters the battlefield under your control, you may have belligerent yearlings base power become equal to that creature's power until end of turn. I was comparing it to Eldrazi Mimic, the two-drop Eldrazi that gets the power and oh, toughness right. of an Eldrazi it does when do it comes that. into yeah, turn. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I saw someone on Twitter saying they were ready for Dinosaur Winter <laughs> when they saw Belligerent Yearling get printed. I've already felt it. Winter's coming. I got a, a cold snap. Okay, well, so you don't like that card. <laughs> but let's, uh, we're going to talk, we do our set reviews in two parts these days. This is part one. We're going to be talking about all of the mechanics of the Lost Caverns of Ixalan from a very broad design-focused perspective. So that conversation will relate to you regardless of what kind of cube you're designing or if you're designing a cube at all. Just talking about how these mechanics interact with the game pieces and how we feel about them in the context of all of Magic's other mechanics. And then the second half of this episode will be the cards that Anthony and I are personally interested in trying out in our cubes from this latest set. Sounds like you have kind of a small list. My list is not huge either. Frankly, as I think our cubes have aged, you and I have gotten better at knowing what kind of cards we want and... Naturally, when new cards come out, I'm just much better at saying, actually, I don't want many of these cards that are otherwise powerful enough. I'm confident that I don't have to test them. So I've got a small list. You've got a small list. We're going to go over them and talk about the cards that we're most excited about, at least. I feel like I just want to want to clarify this point. It attacked me for 12 on turn five. On turn five. Were you not happy for your opponent? It sounds like they had a really great <laughs> my time at pre-release. My opponent, they, <laughs> did their, they completely filled their bingo card. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's about the gathering, Anthony. Yeah. And you got yeah. to gather... Later, I'll tell you what they did to me in the other game with Belligerent Yearling. Okay, we'll save that as a teaser for the end of the episode. If you want to hear <laughs> what Belligerent Yearling did to Anthony in game two, stay tuned to the end of the episode. All right, let's dig into the mechanics from the Lost Caverns of Ixalan. I, as always, have the article on the Mothership pulled up in front of me, written by Matt Tabak, where they go over the mechanics. And Anthony, as always, has also picked out a couple other things that are not specific named mechanics, but are prominent themes in the set that were kind of effectively mechanics, if not, you know, mechanics with a capital M. Yeah, and I think a lot of times those are even more relevant because the headline mechanics are often a little bit more insular. They're, you know, the whole set is designed around some of these particular like kinds of new cards, uh, which makes sense in limited and in the standard environment, but they're maybe not as backwards compatible, maybe not as easy to slot into a cube that is based around already like a strong mechanical identity or a particular theme. But a lot of those additional kinds of themes that are a little bit smaller, a little bit less loud, just will be a little bit easier to fit into those different contexts. So I think it's relevant and there's some interesting ones going on in here. This first mechanic, I would say probably the flagship mechanic of the set is pretty wild. It is craft. It's hard to even describe this. This is a double-faced card mechanic, 
And what happens is cards that have craft will have a craft ability. That ability will have three costs. One is some mana every time. You're also going to have to exile the permanent with craft, and you're also going to have to exile some number of other described materials, which are either going to be permanents and player cards in graveyard. Every craft ability is a little bit unique, so you have to look at the actual card itself, but you're basically paying some mana, exiling a bunch of stuff to flip the card over, and the flavor here is that you're crafting that thing, plus some other stuff into a more powerful thing that's on the backside of the card. Kind of similar to Meld, kind of similar to other transforming cards, but with the benefit that you don't have to meld with a specific permanent, you can kind of meld with any number of described materials on the card with craft itself. Yeah, in some ways this, I mean, feels a little bit like adventure to me in that you have a lot of these cards that you're just thinking of as the adventure. It's like, oh, here's my two mana bounce spell, but it also says you effectively draw this like seven mana card that you can play later on. That's a great and way to play. And these kind of feel similar where it's like, yeah, I do need to build around it to make sure I have those materials available, but the baseline is I'm going to cast this item of the Deep King, it's a two damage spell, and I'm going to deal two damage to something, and I also have drawn this other spell that I can cast later. And a lot of them are, the, the craft costs are pretty expensive, at yes. least uh, the things that came up in Limited, it was like, yeah, here's my six or seven mana spell that I might cast down the line, but really the first thing I'm doing is just this first effect. Yeah, or even if it's a lower mana for the cost, it might involve exiling a lot of other stuff, so you need to have right. a lot of other game pieces either in play or in your graveyard before it matters. From an abstract perspective, we have been critical of the complexity of double face cards on this show before, especially modal double face cards, where you have two faces that are essentially equals, right? You can cast one side or the other side, and there is no, like, game arc that describes how the sides relate to each other. Compared to, like, the original transform cards, the original double face cards from Innistrad block, where there's a front side, and then they transform into a backside based on some gameplay pattern, I much prefer the ones that have a texture to why they flip, right? Rather than modal double face cards. And these certainly fall into that category. And also, like, one of our criticisms is often that the cards end up being very complicated because they essentially have two cards attached to one card. So if your opponent plays this Idol of the Deep King, yeah, they effectively played a spell that did two damage to any target. But now you also have to be aware that they have, like, drawn this face-up card that you should, like, read the rules text of and be aware of. I think a lot of these craft cards do benefit from the fact that it's really expensive, it requires a lot of materials to flip it, and so you just know that that's going to be really bad for me if it happens, right? Kind of similar to the flip abilities on, like, the Praetors from the most recent March of the Machine set, where it was like, you know that's going to be bad. Do I have to read it to know what that saga does exactly? Maybe not all the time, maybe you just know if that happens, I'm going to lose. And I think a lot of these kind of have that play pattern where you just know, I don't want my opponent to flip that, it's going to be bad for me. Yeah, it is kind of just like, sure, I know you have this six-mana thing, I'll, I'll read that when you get to five lands and it starts to be relevant. Exactly, yeah. I gotta say, for all that we are critical of double face cards for those reasons, I do think Meld especially is impossibly cool. Like, one of my favorite magic memories ever is still when you managed to assemble Brazella in your sealed deck back in Shadows of Innistrad, right, was the set that had that? I mean, that was especially cool because the Meld cards had, like, made it a literal big card, you know, with the horizontal cards in the back. And this isn't quite as cool for that reason, but I think a lot of the flavor is there, and these will obviously flip a lot more than you will actually manage to meld things like Brizella in normal context because it doesn't require you have these two very specific pieces. You have to have one piece plus a bunch of other nondescript permanents to use for the craft cost. So I like that aspect of them. Something else that's interesting about these craft cards is they're all actually artifacts. So 
like we're talking about with this thing that's just sort of a removal spell, it's kind of playing the role of this is the cheap common removal that you would, in other sets, maybe it would be an instant sorcery. So I think that if you have a cube that is specifically artifact themed, this might be a source of a lot of new opportunities of just places where you can put those kinds of bread and butter effects onto artifacts. Yeah, some of them do flip into artifact creatures, which, you know, still an artifact, but a creature definitely has a different texture than a non-creature artifact. So at the very least, you can count on the fact that artifact removal will deal with both sides of these cards in all instances. Sometimes it flips into a creature, so creature removal can also be relevant, but it's it's an artifact mechanic. So like you said, if you have an artifact matters cube, this might be interesting to you. All that being said, these are still double face cards, and I know a lot of cube designers, that's just a hard line for them. They're just not going to put double face cards in their cube. It's, you know, one thing when you're opening your sealed deck and all the cards are unsleeved, but having people that are potentially new to your cube, you're playing with cards that are from the whole history of magic, so it's not sort of like, this is how craft works. It's like, here's craft, here's transforming double face cards, here's modal double face cards, potentially all at once. Yeah, I mean, for a lot of cube designers, these are just not going to be of interest. But I think especially for that artifactness to them, that that's where I think that could be most interesting. Yeah, and for me, it's not that I would rule this mechanic out completely at first blush, but these would have to clear a higher bar for me. I would have to really be in love with the card to include something this complicated in this novel in my cube. And spoiler alert for the second half of the episode, none of these craft cards were interesting enough to me that I thought it was worth clearing that bar. So I think some players will have a strong reaction to these because they are pretty cool. They, I think, are on the like cool spectrum between a normal artifact and like a meld Brazella. They're somewhere in between. And I do think that the mechanic overall is an elegant way to have these things transform into bigger stuff without having to have specific card combinations the way that meld used to work. And crafting, you can meld with things that are either in play or in the graveyard, which I feel like gives you a lot of nice flexibility. It's obviously much more powerful to be exiling things from your graveyard in general because things that are in play still have some utility. Uh, but it's nice that they give you that flexibility because sometimes you just won't have a way to get things in the graveyard and it'll be worth it just to lose some resources in play in order to, to craft something. Yeah, the flavor of it kind of feels like maybe it was initially only from the graveyard, but like you said, it's weird if... You have something in play that you would prefer be in the graveyard, but no way to put it there, and that won't allow you to craft it. It just seems kind of strange, so. And all told, there are, what, looks like uh, 19 cards in the set with craft, which is quite a few. A lot of times we see mechanics that are, you know, proper now mechanics in the set that have fewer cards than this, so quite a few running around. Did you run into any of these at pre-release? I did. I mean, my games didn't go super long because I was being because attacked belligerent by belligerent <laughs> yearlings pretty quickly, uh, but I, I crafted a couple things crafted a, a troll or something he was cool love to craft a troll in addition to the craft dfcs there are also just a bunch of other transforming dfcs so that wasn't enough double face cards for us this includes some reprints like growing rights of itlamok uh, as well as a bunch of new cards that will just transform under some other condition whether that's paying some mana or meeting some particular board state and I, I didn't finish reading all these cards. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we have to talk about this in detail. We've talked about transforming cards before, and these have some unique attributes. Like, there's a whole cycle of gods that transform into lands if they would die, and then you can activate some ability on the land to bring the god back, basically, which is a cool flavor. But, yeah, I mean, not a lot of actually unique mechanical space. So, you know, if you are familiar with transforming double face cards from the past, if they're interesting to you or not, we don't have to rehash this whole concept yet again. Great. So instead, let's talk about Descended. So Descended is kind of like a pair of things. First one is just there are cards that care about whether or not you have Descended this turn. And Descended just means that a permanent went to your graveyard from anywhere. Either you milled it over, something left 
play, like you discard it, doesn't matter how. If permanent card went to your graveyard this turn, then you have descended, and cards that care about having descended will have appropriate rules text that cares about that. And then there are other cards that have descend some number that care about how many permanent cards you have in your graveyard. It's kind of like a threshold-style mechanic, but instead of having one set threshold, in the case of Threshold 7 or, you know, Delirium, four different card types, this cares about the number of permanent cards, and every card has a different descend number, so there's not, like, one specific line. It just depends on the individual cards how much they actually work. Yeah, this is kind of a, a flexible mechanic in the same way that Landfall is, where Landfall doesn't actually have any rules baggage associated with it. It's just a little flavor word that clues you into this card is going to care about lands entering the battlefield. And it could be a triggered ability, or it could be, you know, if you had played a land, this sorcery will do something different. Uh, and this is the same thing, where some things will just care about, have you had a permanent go to the graveyard? Some things will care about the number. Specifically, they've uh, limited it to things that care about having four or eight, which I think or is just fathomless. Which I think is just a really nice ergonomic decision that that it's if you had you know descend six and descend four and descend five like it would be a little, really fiddly to keep track of all those so just sort of quietly sort of binning it to these two different thresholds of four and eight I think it's just going to make it a lot easier to keep track of board states and then yeah we yeah have there's that. nothing about the mechanic itself that would limit it in the rules right. to being four or eight it's just that for the design of this set they have chosen two different thresholds. Plus this fathomless one, which essentially swaps in X for four or eight. Right, yeah. So that is going to be effects that just scale with the number of permanents that are in your graveyard. In the pantheon of graveyard matters mechanics, the like of Threshold and Delirium, putting aside things like flashback or retrace or jumpstart, things that you actually like use stuff from your graveyard, just things that care about the nature and scope of that zone, Threshold, Delirium, this new mechanic, Descended. How do you feel about where this fits in with those? What a big question. Uh, I think that this is the same. <laughs> well, so, so in my immediate thoughts are, I, I've never loved Threshold as a mechanic because it is so on-off, right? Like, yes. a lot of the Threshold cards are just not good until you have Threshold, then they get quite good after you have Threshold, and so it's kind of modal, but it's modal in the sense that the card is either bad or it's good, and there's, like, a hard line as to when that happens. I think with Delirium cards... And cards that are Delirium-esque, like the likes of Tarmogoyf, they care about the number of types, which is not strictly Delirium, but, you know, cares about the exact same sort of thing. With those cards, I feel like they did a better job designing that in a way that was a little more dynamic. Uh, a lot of those cards fuel themselves. If you talk about things like Dragon's Rage Channeler and Grim Flayer, both of which I run in the Bun Magic Cube. And as you're working your right up to Delirium, they, you know, they still matter, right? It's like it's a less of a like big cliff of not mattering to mattering and more of like a it's good to it's great, which is which is nice. I think it's interesting that permanent cards, accepting fetch lands, are much less likely to end up in your graveyard naturally over the course of a game than spells, right? If we think about cards like Delve that want to have a lot of things in your graveyard, those mechanics tend to pair really well with aces and sorceries, because you cast the card, it has its effect, and it also puts one card in the graveyard. Whereas if you play a creature, that doesn't go to the graveyard until you trade off in combat or it dies a removal spell. So caring about permanence in graveyards specifically, I think, is going to differentiate this mechanic substantially from Delirium and Threshold in terms of the kind of decks that can actually make use of these cards. For example, there is a, uh, a blue-black Descend 8 card in this set, a rare that becomes a giant creature if you've descended if you have descend eight turned on. If you have eight permanents in your graveyard. And it's a two-mana card that becomes a huge creature, which you know from my cube design sensibilities, if there's a two-mana card that can be a huge creature, I'm very interested in it, right? I love my Murktide readings and my Tarmoglyphs. I think it's really cool. So I definitely looked at that card and was really interested in it, but 
the kind of deck that would want that in my cube would intend to fill the graveyard with cantrips, removal spells, counter spells, all things that don't turn on descend. So I think there's a like natural tension or like a natural way that this mechanic deviates from threshold and delirium because again the best ways to fill your graveyard with threshold and delirium are with all the stuff that goes to your graveyard naturally right when i think about delirium enablers i think about an artifact that sacrifices for an ability right the baubles the spell bombs then i'll put an artifact in your graveyard or up your delirium count and it gets one of those things in the graveyard that are hard to get there whereas fetch lands instants and sorceries are like gimmies on the delirium counter for me so i i think descend four seems like it'll be fairly reasonable if you have a ton of fetch lands in your cube, like in mine. Like, I think getting to descend four is not going to be too hard for a lot of decks in my cube because, you know, by turn three or four, you've probably had a fetch land or two. Then you only need two other permanents to have gone to the graveyard to turn that on. I think descend eight is a really high bar to clear in almost any environment. And for those reasons, I think these cards are going to fit better in, like, self-mill decks than they are in decks that are just good with delve cards, right? Like, a deck that could really abuse... Tossiger, the Golden Fang, or Treasure Cruise in my cube is not going to be able to abuse the Descent cards in the same way because the way it's filling the graveyard is just very different. Yeah, I mean, I think this pairs really well with what we said earlier about a lot of the sort of bread and butter effects are attached to artifacts rather than being its sorceries. And that yeah. fits really well with this because they're also going to be potentially ways if you can sacrifice those to fill the graveyard. So, so it's think- a little weird that the craft artifacts have that effect, right? Where they like have a spell-like effect a lot of times when they come into play, mm-hmm. but then they don't go to the graveyard. They sit and play to right, be crafted, right, right. which means that they are not themselves going to fuel your descent. Potentially. I mean, there are a fair number of ways to sacrifice artifacts as well. So I think that if you're designing a a cube that specifically is trying to do this kind of thing, there are a lot of options. Like, rather than another cantrip, you can play things like Omen of the Sea, which is a cantrip attached to an enchantment, uh, or Dress Down, or all kinds of things that people often do play in cubes. So, yeah, I agree. It's like a little bit, takes a little bit more effort, maybe, than just filling up the graveyard. And to your point about it sort of being more just in gameplay, I do agree that the variety of having things that care about different amounts of things, different quantities in the graveyard, feels a lot better. It's not just Delirium or Threshold where it's like, if my deck is all about this, either my deck is on or not. Mm -hmm. It really felt like, oh, different parts of my deck are working better. And it's like, okay, the more I'm getting to four cards in graveyard, now I'll cast these spells that are relevant. Uh, And a lot of these things also just care about it once they're in play. So it's not like you want to just hold your cards in hand until you can get to that threshold, which I think, yeah, overall that gameplay feels much more interesting. Yeah, I I will say I don't love as a cube designer having multiple mechanics that are like similar in vibe overlapping right so That's in my, in my cube yeah. i have a lot of delirium stuff a lot you know i have a number of delirium cards and delirium-esque cards like to me again tarmogoyf is effectively a delirium card in the sense that you have to care about the same set of things in your graveyard right how many types do i have if it's over four i know i have delirium i have to know the exact number for tarmogoyf but you're caring about the same thing if you're having to look at your graveyard and figure out do i have delirium and also what is my descend number and potentially I have an undergrowth card, so I have to care specifically about creatures in graveyard right. or something cares about number of lands in graveyard. You can get pretty complicated pretty quickly here. Right, and as soon as you are like looking at the same set of things and counting two different things about it, I think it gets really tricky. And also a lot of players will tend to shortcut these things, right? I mean, this is a new mechanic, so I don't think there'll be a lot of shortcutting initially, but fast forward 12 months, and I think a lot of people will kind of have glommed delirium and descend and these other mechanics kind of together in their head and might not remember is that a descend card or a delirium card and then they have then you're in the position where they're actually having to read the cards the text literally on the cards in order to understand what's going on and they can't use a lot of those heuristics they've built up in their mind so that's something to be conscious of i think is just 
how many types of mechanics you have that care about different angles on the same zone. Anthony, they brought back Cascade. Did they now? But it's called Discover. <laughs> Discover is a new keyword action that can trigger or just happen as part of the resolution of a spell. Or that, an ability or, or ability. anything at all they want to do. Yeah, that has a number associated with it. And what you do when you discover X is you exile the top card from your library until you exile a non-land card with mana value X or less, cast a bill of paying its mana cost, or put it into your hand. That's the one differentiation here from literal cascade that put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. So it's basically like we have that one like fix for with cascade you don't necessarily want to put conditional cards in your deck because if you cascade into them they don't work and you miss out on that card yeah the uh, reason i this, don't play charlotte's agent is because i love counter spells so much and i just fully believe in my cube you could not put charlotte's agent and counter spell in the same deck because it would be too bad to whiff right so in this case you don't get to cast the card immediately if it's you know something that doesn't have a relevant target or whatever but you still get to put it in your hand so you're always getting a card Sometimes you get the free mana, basically, for to be able to cast it. The other thing that they've done is then just sliced it apart. It's interesting to look at Cascade as actually kind of a complex mechanic. It's both this, like, flipping things off the top of your library, but it's also specifically attached to casting a spell and has a number that is tied to the mana value of the spell. But you could, aside from that draw card change, uh, just rewrite every Cascade card and say, oh, this has, when you cast it, discover X, where X is one less than its mana cost. And it would be exactly the same, right? Well, I mean, I do think it's important that Cascade is a cast trigger, and none That's of these true, yeah. are cast triggers. They these are all part ETBs. of the resolution of abilities or the out of the battlefield of creatures, which is something that some players might not be conscious of. But if you've ever cast uh, Bloodbraid Elf against your opponent who has islands up, it's it makes a difference. It for sure makes a difference, right? The fact that you cannot just counterspell Bloodbraid Elf and be done with it. You can counterspell Geological Appraiser, right? Which is this uncommon Bloodbraid Elf esque card in mono red, but you just counterspell that, and it's done. Whereas you can't answer a cascade thing with a counterspell. Well, you can answer one of the two things, right? Like, the cascade trigger is going to happen. You could stifle it, I guess. But assuming you don't, they'll find a spell. That spell will then go on the stack. You can counter that one, or you can counter the first one that actually had the cascade trigger. That does matter in a lot of situations. So I think this is actually kind of cleaning that up. I I've seen a lot of new players... For example, let's say Bloodbraid Elf is the exact case. They Bloodbraid Elf into a combat trick. And they're like, great, I'll target my Bloodbraid Elf. And it's like, oh, yeah. eh, actually, no, your Bloodbraid Elf isn't in play yet. Your Bloodbraid Elf right. is going to resolve after the Cascade thing, which I think is a little tricky. This mechanic is inherently high variance, right? Like, we're talking about just literally casting a random spell filtered by a certain mana value off the top of your deck. But something that becomes clear when you look at the way that Cascade is played, especially in Constructed Magic, is that it's always about, well, almost always about, removing as much of that variance as possible, right? Like, the one like, fair application that I'm aware of of Cascade and Constructed Magic was, like, literally Bloodbraid Elf and Junt, where it's like, right. I'm going to hit a Thought Seize, a Lightning Bolt, or a K-Command, and all of those are great. It doesn't really matter which one I hit. I'm going to be happy to hit any one of those. Otherwise, we're talking about decks like Living Death, right, that are playing Violent Outburst just because it cascades into the specific copies of Living Death in their deck and nothing else can possibly be hit. Or we're talking about these eight Beans decks in Legacy that are playing Sharvless Agent only to cascade and dump the Beanstalk and there's literally no other hits. So I think you probably know if your cube wants Cascade and I think for the most part, cubes that want Cascade will also be interested in Discover. And there may be specific cards that are exploitable in similar ways to the way that Sharvless Agent is exploitable with Up the Beanstalk or the way that any of the cheap... Cascade spells are exploitable with the zero mana cost spells like Living Death. 
But I do think that even if you haven't necessarily been interested in Cascade, Discover is potentially more, it's a lot more flexible, so they can do different things. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm casting this spell and getting a cheaper spell. They can make a cheap spell that has Discover 12 and you go get something huge, uh, which might mean that even if if you haven't been interested in Cascade, there could be something that's like, this just feels more like a late game mana sink or just some other interesting twist. I have played Bloodbraid Elf in my cube over the years. It's actually been in and out a few times. You're currently playing Bloodbraid Elf in the regular cube. What is your relationship to that Cascade trigger? How do you feel about it as a cube designer? I mean, it's a lot of fun. I, I agree that the way that uh, Cascade works in Constructed, where you're trying to basically optimize it to do a certain thing, is less interesting to me. But when it's I'm a fun deck it building, in, like it's a fun deck building constraint. Sure, sure. Like I think it's cool that people have figured out how to build legacy decks that have nothing that costs less than three mana, so they can play Charmless Agent up the Beanstalk and still do things on the first couple sure. turns of the game. Like that's kind of a cool deck building constraint. But I agree, it's not interesting from a player perspective. You just made eight copies of of the beanstalk now. right but in a cube where it's like often largely singleton you actually are going to still get a lot of that variance that i think is a lot of fun so you like it because it's fun i like it because it's fun correct in- inevitably when i was playing Bloodbraid elf in my cube i would be so happy whenever i Bloodbraid elfed into anything cool like mm-hmm. k command or whatever then every time i had a stupid land or elves i was like i hate this card and i would cut it and then i would get excited about <laughs> it and i would add it again and then the next draft i would draft it and i would cascade into stupid elves of deep shadow and i'd be like get this out of here i hate it so it, it does definitely have that variance i would say that the lower numbers are going to inherently have less variance right like if you are playing a card that has discover six on it that's going to have to be costed assuming that you might hit a six drop but on average you are probably not you are probably going to hit the average mana value of your deck, because you're probably not playing many cards that cost six or over. Whereas if you have a card that has, like, Discover 2 or Discover 3, I'm not even sure if Discover 2 is printed in this set. The really low numbers are actually dangerous, right? Like, that's... All of the dangerous Cascade cards that constructed are the three mana value ones. There are none that are two mana value or lower, because then it becomes way too easy to build your deck around just having one hit for those things. Having played the Cascade cube, yes, they are dangerous. (laughs) Yeah. So... The lower numbers, though, are much more... They're much lower variance, right? Because if you're hitting a 1, or 2, or a 3, that's a much smaller range than a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, or 6. And so the cards are going to be costed appropriately. And that's maybe something to look to if you're trying to figure out which of these cards are relevant in your own environments. Those ones are going to be less swingy and have a more like narrow range of potential outcomes the lower that number is. There is something funny just from a design perspective that I want to talk about, which is... I remember Mark Rosewater talking, I'm sure this was on a Drive to Work episode, about designing mechanics and being willing to just commit to being concrete about things. Uh, So I think specifically he might have mentioned Hideaway, which initially when it was printed, Hideaway just said, look at the top four cards and put them under your library. Or maybe he was talking about Eternalize as well, which just brings things back as a 4-4. And as a designer, you might be tempted to say like, well, let's make it Eternalize and then a number so we can have a lot more flexibility to design all kinds of different mechanics. Or Hideaway 6, look at the top six right, cards. Right, sort then, of yeah. preserve that, that opportunity to have more knobs to turn later on. And really his point was that it doesn't matter that much. You can design a new mechanic later, make it different if you need to, but just making it clear is going to be a lot more consistent and easier to understand. Don't be afraid to just pick a number was kind of his point. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting both with Discover, which they didn't make it Discover, like a threshold style where it's a specific number. They've given themselves tons of flexibility. They've gone back and basically redone Cascade, where they've separated it from the cast trigger, separated it from the mana cost of the spell to give them all this flexibility. And literally with Hideaway, they went back and eroded it and said, oh, all those things now have Hideaway 4, but we can make Hideaway whatever number we want. But they haven't yet, right? They've only ever made Hideaway 4? They've still, I think, only... No, there because there was a reason they did it. They reprinted it in... 
some set where they did Hydro in, in. I thought the only thing was the Modern Horizons where they added Watcher for Tomorrow, which is also four. No, they didn't. That was still Hideaway four at the time. Streets of New Capenna. Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah. for Streets of New Capenna, they changed it to I think everything there is Hideaway five, but they've added that number. And I'm wondering, does this like reflect some fundamental design philosophy change, and that they're just like we're designing so many cards, we need every knob to be turnable. We just we just have to make these things flexible, and we can't just commit to like uh, what I would call hard coding aspects of these mechanics. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I think, yes, they are making a lot of magic cards, and that is almost certainly a consideration, is just being as future-proof as possible. I think this is also probably a big designing for an eternal world bugbear, where previously, if they were to print Cascade and then print different Cascade 10 years later with just, like, slightly different rules, it wouldn't really cause any problems. But now that people have commander decks that are playing cards from all of History of Magic, you don't want to have werewolf ability and different werewolf ability because then it's really confusing and hard to keep track of so they are motivated that's, that's a great point so they've solved the problem by adding new cascade which now works better and will be more consistent and now we have two standards <laughs> yeah another standard thus another solving standard. the problem forever but no i mean i think that i think that's why we see the updating of hideaway and other things like that right like if they print a future cares about hideaway card now they have a history of hideaway cards that can care about hideaway even if they didn't want to be limited by the design restriction of those hideaway lands in Lorwyn. I don't know. That's my guess. Yeah. I mean, it also might just be a, a much higher tolerance for complexity, which is another thing that really, really stands out to me about this set is complexity. You say that every time. You say I, that so much it's lost all that's meaning. That's because literally every set is more complicated than the last one. <laughs> Speaking of complicated, Explore is back. This is a mechanic from the first time we were on Ixalan and what Explore says, and this is one of those mechanics that... I often have to reread just to make mm-hmm. sure I get it right. I think it works. I think it works really well. What it does to the game is good, but it does take a little a second to reorient yourself it takes, to what it does. It takes like four percent of mental processing, whereas a lot of things just kind of come naturally. It's often attached to a creature, or it says target creature explores. Exploring is a thing creatures can do, and what it says is you look at the top card of your library. If it's land, you put it into your hand. Does not trigger draw a card. You're not drawing it. You're looking at it and then putting it into your hand. Don't get confused. If it's <laughs> if, Rule one, don't get confused. If it is not a land, you may choose to either keep it on top of your library or put it into your graveyard, but you're not surveilling it there. You're just putting it into your graveyard. And when you do that, you put a plus one, plus one counter on the creature. So your creature either discovers a new land or has an experience that makes it stronger. Yes. And that experience involves you making a choice about whether or not you want to draw that non-land card or not. So it touches a lot of things, right? It's a card selection mechanic, it's a card advantage mechanic, and it's also a board-affecting mechanic in that it makes creatures bigger some percentage of the time. It's also a graveyard-filling mechanic, which is very relevant with Descend. Correct. We also, in this set, have a new Trinket Artifact token. They love these things these days. And it is a map token, and a map token is just an artifact that says... Pay one, tap and sacrifice it, target creature you control explorers, activate only as a sorcery. So taking the same way that blood tokens take rummaging and put it on a trinket artifact token, map tokens take exploring and put it on a trinket artifact token. We've had explore 
since original Ixalan. What do you think of that mechanic? Like I said, I think it's a really good mechanic in the way that it plays. It does just give you a lot of opportunities to do different things. It lets you put stuff in your graveyard if you care about that. It's filtering the top of your library. It's drawing you extra lands. And I think that, you know, adding this sort of interstitial step of first you get a map token and then you can pay for it later also just adds more hooks for other things you mechanically care about, artifacts entering the battlefield. Or in the set, there are a ton of things that care about, you know, sacrificing some number of artifacts or crafting with them. Or It also lets them print cards that are designed and balanced in very different ways. Yeah. You couldn't have three of an inspector if it just entered the battlefield and draw a card, but a clue is not quite as good as drawing a card. So in the same way as that... But if you have things that just care about material, having rectangles in play, or having artifacts, it does a lot. Yeah, I agree. I like Explore. I wish it didn't feel... So it doesn't feel resonant or intuitive to me. Like no matter how much I play, I've cast Jade Light Ranger probably. I don't know. Name it. Name a number. Forty times. <laughs> forty. That's maybe, a maybe lot. forty or fifty times between times. all the cubes I've played it in. It's a fairly popular cube card, and I still like. I was just just looking at the article here, and I was like, "Is the card revealed, or do you look at it first? Mm -hmm. And I was like, "Do you draw the card, or do you not draw it? Just explore, explore. Yeah, exactly. Does Jade Light Ranger have Explore two, or does it have Explore twice? It requires a little bit of mental processing for me to, to, to figure out. And in the case of a lot of these cards, too, I think they also have this inherent variance in them. Like, if you look at Jade Light Ranger as a case study, that card is either one green-green for a 2-1 that draws two cards, or a 3-2 that draws one card and lets you surveil one, or a 4-3 that lets you surveil two. And any one of those outcomes is good, but not having control over what type it is, which you do have a little bit of control, right? Like, the main way you have control is that the first Explorer, if you hit a non-land card, you can choose to keep it on top so you're guaranteed the second Explorer also it's a non-land card, right? That's like the extent of control you have over how big that thing comes out. But there are definitely board states where you really want your Jailite Ranger to be a 4-3, and it's just not. It's a 2-1 that draws two cards. Or vice versa. You really want to draw some more lands, and it just doesn't do that. It just surveils two cards of the graveyard and is a big threat, but your opponent just bolts it. Not having direct control over how this mechanic affects the board or affects your draws like that variance i think is something that's intrinsic to it that you just have to like accept and understand about it it is kind of funny that they put explore and discover in the same set basically like allowing you to set up your cascades in some cases which feels like something that is like a level of complexity that i wouldn't expect to see in a limited environment i think it's cool i think it makes sense there are also some really push cards that make map tokens or have explore in this set that we'll talk about so for Cube designers that care about powerful cards, this mechanic will definitely be in play for them. And there's a dinosaur with a headlamp? Yeah, I didn't that card art was really not for me. What's what's what are they doing over there? <laughs> I really didn't love that one, you know? Not every card's for me, and that one is one of them. It's not for me. Given that we're not talking about finality counters, that brings us to the end of the named mechanics in the set. But Anthony, you, as always, have a little list here of other themes you've picked up on. We got caves. caves. We can't go to the Lost Caverns of Ixalan without having caves. Gotta have some caverns to be lost in. This is a new land type, which, similar to gates, uh, doesn't necessarily have deserts. any inherent meaning in deserts as well. Inherent meaning to uh, the, the game rules, but other cards can just care about caves. And there are a number of caves that cards already printed that care about them and i expect like we've seen with gates we'll probably come back and see more of these so i think a lot of people have built environments that have a little bit of a gate sub theme and use it's, it's a cool way to sort of take advantage of your mana fixing as also a way to have a sort of new strategy built into your environment with a small number of payoff cards and this is something that could be similar for other people's cubes yeah caves Great. are cool i like the uh cycle of deserts that could sacrifice a desert to some ability and 
they themselves were deserts, so the base use case was sacrifices to do this ability once, but if you had other deserts around, you could get that ability multiple times, like the Ramanap Ruins style cards. Yeah, similarly, there's also a cycle of just a cave that enters tapped and makes the five colors of mana, one of each of the five colors of mana, and has five mana to sacrifice it and discover four. Uh, so this is kind of an interesting payoff of playing a monocolored land that later lets you do a little cascade, which is kind of a cool value thing. I know some people have been testing these in peasant and pauper cubes, and I'm curious how they end up playing out. I wonder, what's your guess on pure rate of how you would have to cost, like what number discover, if you put aside the idea of like breaking discover by building your constructed deck so you only have very limited hits, what number discover do you think is like, I mean, it's just, it's strictly better than draw a card always, because you can always just draw the card if you want. Well, I guess not, because if you're trying to find lands, then you can't discover lands. How do you think Discover X compares to the ability to draw a card? I mean, sometimes you get to cheat on mana, so it's way, way, way more powerful, right? Is Discover 1 more powerful? Like, you're, if you're, it's not draw a card, because you're not going to draw anything bigger than 1, and you're never going to draw a land. So, I'm saying, like, what number hmm. Discover do you think is equal on rate to, if these lands just said, sacrifice, draw a card? But it's so much more exciting. You can't, you can't, you can't more exciting excitement level. I'm just trying to, from purely spiky perspective, figure out how powerful Discover is on these lands, right? Discover four, sometimes you're going to get a free four drop. That's amazing. That's an incredible rate for a tapped land. Sometimes you're going to get a one mana spell that you just hit and you will have skipped past your five and six drop that you would have much rather drawn at this point of the game when you have a bunch of mana left over. And you're going to skip past those to draw some one drop or something, which I know obviously it could have been the other way around. That kind of variance you shouldn't really account for, but I don't know. I just don't know. I don't really know how to rate it on power level. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, again, they've sort of split up the mana cost and uh, discover number, which means they've made it five mana to discover four, which feels very much like Cascade. They could have chosen to be like, well, this is two mana to Cascade four uh, or you discover say that, four. But they won't do that. They won't do that, but maybe they will. <laughs> That's broken. <laughs> Like every single set, we also have a few different kindred themes. Uh, specifically, we have dinosaurs and pirates. They're just a, a ton of cards that care about you having dinosaurs, like, for example... And vampires, too. There's a couple of vampire things as well. Oh, yeah, that's a great also. point. There's some vampires as well. This isn't necessarily a set that cares about creature types to the same extent as the previous visit to Ixalan, which was, like, really all about that. But there's always a, a little bit of it just to add some texture. So there are a couple payoffs for dinosaurs and pirates and vampires, which is also, you know, a cool callback to the previous iteration of this set anything else anthony we spent a long time on these mechanics there are, i mean again this is just kind of a complex set the two other things that i have here are especially in selesnia there's a little bit of a power matters theme in the sense that it cares about if you've boosted the power of your creatures in some way so there are a couple uncommons and rares that just reward you for attacking your opponent with things that have equipment on them have a, a combat trick cast on them have a plus one plus one counter and this is something that i think is pretty evergreen and will slot into a lot of different cubes because a lot of cubes have equipment and plus one plus one counters and other ways to boost your creatures I haven't heard your testing list yet, but if it doesn't include that four-drop uncommon cat guy, I'm going to be upset. <sighs> okay, do you want to hear about the other other thing that Belligerent Yearling <laughs> did to me? Okay, fine. We're going to hear about it mid-episode. <laughs> so what happened was, I mulled a six, had a horrible six. My opponent casts Belligerent Yearling on turn two. On turn three, they cast Itali's Favor, which is a three-mana aura that gives your creature plus one, plus one and Trample. It also has Discover 3, and they discovered into Kutzil Malamet Exemplar, which meant they were attacking me on turn 3 with a 4-3 Trample that when it dealt damage to me, they drew a card, and also they had an extra 3-3, and I had like a 2-2. A two -two. I can see here from this helpful Lost Caverns of Ixalan pronunciations image I got off Twitter that 
That card is pronounced Kutzeel. Kutzeel. Sorry about that. No, no, you're fine. It's difficult. Learning uh, together. I, it's funny. Here's my... You want to know my one of my chief complaints about this set, actually? It's a weird one. Can't tell what rarity the cards are from looking at the stupid symbol. Oh, yeah. That's... Just, uh, just give up. I thought Sovereign Okinek Ahau was an uncommon, but it's a mythic. I still want you to try this in the regular cube. Nope. It, didn't you hear my story about how bad it hurt me? And I'm just... That didn't, that didn't involve Sovereign Okinek Ahau at all. Well, that's the one that's even more powerful. It's just a 3-4 ward 2 whenever it attacks. He trades you control with base power that's with power greater than that you can do yeah power, get through this word puzzle, puzzle get counters. through this word maze it's it, it's one of these things you have to read it once or twice but then it's actually very clear it's very intuitive mm-hmm. how it actually plays out it's like animate dead you know the actual text of animate dead super complicated what it does very simple but uh, animate dead in the title you just have to read the name of the card and it's like oh i animate this dead great easy yeah, this, guy's, this, uh, this, this guy, guy says okie necking some house all right extremely clear the last little theme we have is in red-white. There are a bunch of cards that care about tapping your creatures. This is sort of funny. In the previous set, we saw a theme of tapping your opponent's creatures like and getting ha-ha. some reward. Uh, sure, if, you, if you're if you into that. Uh, it depends on your sense of humor. Here we have things that care about tapping your own creatures. This can be things that just reward you for tap two of your creatures to put a plus one, plus one counter on, on this creature. I think this is going to be especially interesting for cubes that have a deep vehicles theme. Looking at you, Bones. Bones. All right, can we get to the cards that we are interested in trying in our own cubes now? Let's do it. I don't have a ton. I assume you have regular cube. Do you also have turbo cube? I have three for regular cube and three for the turbo cube. Okay. I have some for the bun magic cube okay. and one and a half for the degenerate micro cube. Very specific numbers. Why don't you start with the regular cube? All right, for the regular cube, there's not a ton that I was interested in. I mean, a lot of this is, to your point earlier... We've... Real quick, also, explain the regular cube for the nice people. Yes. So, my main cube, the regular cube, is a much lower-powered cube. It plays a lot like a master set or like a, a little bit of a powered-up limited set in terms of decks are mostly trying to play to the board, play creatures. It's a lot about creature combat. Does that sum it up? Anything else you would mention about regular cube? It's like a peasant cube with rares. Sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> That's very clear to people, right? There aren't a ton of cards, and I think a big factor here is just that, like you were mentioning earlier, these cubes that we've had for years, they've kind of just like sort of approached a place that we're pretty comfortable with, and there are a ton of cards I could just swap in and out, and it would change things, but it's not anything that I'm like, oh, this is a slam dunk, this is like a totally unique new thing. So, a lot of these cards maybe will just go into new future cube projects, and regular cube is increasingly kind of reaching its asymptote. But I'm a little bit curious about Subterranean Schooner. This is one in a blue for a 3-4 vehicle. It has crew one, and whenever it attacks target creature that crewed it, explores. This is... I, I don't really know how this to evaluate is, it. It this seems is pushed. pretty powerful. It also just like does a lot of fun, fiddly things in terms of giving you some card selection, being an efficient threat, and putting counters on your creatures. It isn't totally in line with what blue is doing here, but... I think because I don't really know how to evaluate here, the right answer is throw it in and see what it does. I'm a little surprised you're interested in this one. What is it about you and liking vehicles to be some of the best cards in your cube, weirdly? I I don't know. Boats are cool. Trains are cool. Boats are cool. Might as well have some good trains and boats. Yeah, this is at least colored. Maybe that's the issue with the train is it's it's colorless. There's no issue with the train. It's just an interesting observation that Untethered Express is one of the more potent threats at the top end of the cube. I I mean, this is very strong, I think. I mean... Compare it briefly, if you will, to Smuggler's Copter. It's not as good as Smuggler's Copter, but it it's also... It's basically Smuggler's Copter. It also has Crew 1. It's also 2 mana value. Mm-hmm. It's got a bigger point of toughness, and when it attacks, it's actually 
buffing the thing that crewed it, which is safe back on your side of the battlefield. Back on the boat. Not, not having to get into combat itself, which I think is quite powerful. Like, if this were colorless, I would probably jam it into one magic cube. Sure. On power level. I think another factor is, like, blue is definitely the weakest color in the cube right now, so, like... Which you can a, say with confidence now that we have the data from yeah. CubeCon. Adding a powerful outlier that is not a red card is fine. It's also super flavorful. You get on the boat, you explore. I mean, I'll first pick it. Sign me up. Next up, I think this is going to be a, a card that's going to find a home in a lot of cubes, is Bitter Triumph. We actually just have sort of a glut recently of a lot of two-mana black removal spells. This is one of black for an instant. As an additional cost, you must discard a card or pay three life, and it destroys target creature or planeswalker. This is similar to Infernal Grasp. It does a little bit more damage, except you have the flexibility that sums. You can just discard a card. This is just going to be and a And also, role it can player. kill planeswalkers. Infernal Grasp That's true. Cannot. That's a great point. Less relevant uh, for the regular cube. super relevant but... for regular cube, but going to be relevant in many other contexts last up i've got glorifier of suffering this is two and a white for a three two vampire soldier when it enters the battlefield you may sacrifice another creature or artifact when you do put a one one counter on each of up to two target creatures this isn't anything splashy but i'm i think it might actually have some interesting play patterns uh i think the difficult question here is what am i going to cut as far as white three drops if i want to not have that part of the curve be too bulky but it just gives you a lot of options in terms of upgrading something and uh, using cards that are potentially not relevant in play anymore. I actually thought about that exact card for the regular cube when I saw it. It had regular cube energy to it me. It really it really does. You forgot one card, Nathan. You forgot Sovereign Okinek Ahau. <laughs> uh, do you want to read this guy? I do. I want to read it. So this is two green-white for a 3-4 legendary creature Cat Noble. It's got Ward 2, and whenever it attacks for each creature you control with power greater than that creature's base power... Put a number of plus one, plus one counters on that creature equal to the difference. As Anthony alluded to earlier, one of these sentences you got to read maybe twice before you like truly get it. But what it basically does is it'll double plus one, plus one counters on creatures because a plus one, plus one counter is inherently power and toughness greater than its base power. So this will snowball quickly if you have a creature with a plus one, plus one counter on it. It also turns temporary buffs, be they from equipment, combat tricks, anthems, whatever into plus one plus one counters, permanent buffs, which I think is very cool. I think this would be worse than subterranean schooner in your cube. Interesting, interesting. Here's the thing. It's a four mana three four. The ward two is is certainly nice. I think it's a mythic because it is like a very specific build around. It's a, uh, it's for, a mythic? Are you sure about this color? <laughs> I, I checked the letter in the bottom left. I oh, literally smart. was just looking yeah. at the letter in the bottom left in this set because I can't tell from the stupid set symbol at all. I think it's a mythic for reasons other than pure power level. And the fact that without some other card to enable it it's just the three four like it is totally fine it's worse than shalai without another creature in play specifically another creature that has an equipment has a combat trick has a plus one plus one counter i think it fits the regular themes perfectly and is on the like legolas spectrum which i think you have to confess <laughs> at this point that legolas was fine it didn't break the cube i, I was told at cubecon that legolas was fine <laughs> i like how you're very political answer. I have this. I have received Lots of people are saying a... <laughs> Legolas is fine. People are saying it. Legolas is fine. <laughs> All right. But we're, we're going to put this here on the balance scale. There are a lot of other negatives. Uh, negative one. Green white cards are cool. And so there are already a lot of them in the cube. So adding more green oh, white we cards. Could, we could find a cut or two. Uh, I don't know if we could. Well, I mean, look, I mean, on power level, I think this is comparable to something like Voice of Resurgence, but it cares so much more about what the regular cube is doing. Voice of Resurgence is just a generically good card that kind of hates on counter spells, which are not even really a major component of the environment. This is so much worse against removal than Voice of Resurgence is. It's more expensive than Voice of Resurgence is. And it's thematic with what's going on. 
Okay, these are all compelling arguments. Next thing on the scale, it's a word maze. I don't think it's that bad. I really don't. Bad. You had a very good argument for the previous point. For this, your argument is I don't think judge. I don't think it's that bad. Okay, I mean, here's what's the crime here? It's not that many words. Let's agree about that. This is not. This would not be the wordiest of your green white cards by a long by a wide margin. Mm. It's not. It's not that many words, and it's only one ability. I mean, the word two is a kind of little ability too. You have other word in the environment, so word has precedent. I think the only thing that's weird about this is that it is a little bit trickily worded so that it can be correct in the rules, right? It will take a little bit of processing to figure out exactly what it triggers, but I don't think it's actually that complicated. Not the wordiest. It, it, I think it might literally be the wordiest card. Absolutely not. No chance. Uh, bitter Chill. Bitter Chill's got too much going on. What are you talking about? We're going to do. We're gonna figure this out right now. I need to add the uh, word count option to the list formatter. I'm going to count this out loud. <laughs> All right, let's just look at literally gold cards. Voice resurgence, for sure, more words. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40. 41 words on voice of resurgence, plus a unique counter. Let's check Sovereign Okinek Ahau. Cutting a unique token definitely goes on the pro side of the scale. One, do we count the two in ward two as a word? Yes. Okay, fine. I'll give that to you. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine, thirty, thirty-one, thirty-two, thirty-three. Seven less words, eight less words in voice of resurgence, one less unique token. But it's got it's got uh, twelve words of flavor text. You love flavor text. <laughs> You're a famous flavor text defender. Okay, I'm not going to bully you too fine, hard. Fine. I'm not going to bully what you too hard. What are you putting hard. in your cube? All right. But <laughs> <laughs> you could tell that I was going to say I'm not going to bully you too hard. Then I was going to further bully you, you but you cut me, me off. So great. Uh-huh. You win. But it's, it's a long episode, so I'll, I'll, I'll allow this to happen. My Bun Magic Cube is a low-curving eternal environment that plays some of Magic's most powerful cards. This is where you will find your Snapcaster Mages, your Counterspells, your Lightning Bolts, and all of the cards that make them tick and are of a similar power level. I try to make a play like fair legacy deck. So there's no combo, there's no broken stuff you can be doing. It's all fair by my definition of fair. But there are definitely some of Magic's most powerful cards, and it's a very punishing, low-curving environment, which means that really only the best cards in the set are going to be powerful enough for consideration. I'm going to go through a lot of these kind of quickly because they're kind of like passing flights of fancy. So roughly in order uh, from least interested to most interested for my cube. Number one, Tarion's Soul Cleaver is one generic mana for legendary artifact equipment. Equip creature has vigilance. Whenever another artifact or creature is put into a graveyard from the battlefield, put a plus one plus one counter on equipped creature and equip two. I am solely interested in this because I have wanted a good equipment to get with Urza's Saga because I choose not to play... Shadow Spear. Shadow Spear, because it gives lifelink, and I don't like lifelink. If I'm honest with myself, the card I should put in the cube in this slot is called, like, Team Banner or Team Pennant or some, like, stupid thing from uh, Strixhaven, which gives plus one, plus one, and flying, I think, uh, which would be quite good. What is it actually called? Yeah, Team Pennant, uh, which gives plus one, plus one. I'm sorry. Which gives plus one, plus one, Vigilance and Trample, and equips creature tokens for only one. That is actually a much better thing to get with uh, Urza Saga, and I've looked at it before. I just hate the flavor. It looks so dumb and silly, and I hate it. Terrian Soul Cleaver has cool fantasy flavor, so maybe I'll try this out, but I'm not super excited about it. 
All right, next up is Restless Prairie. This is the green-white creature land. It enters the battlefield tapped, taps for a green or a white, and for two, green-white becomes a 3-3 three, three, green and white llama creature token until end of turn, and whenever it attacks, creatures you control get plus one, plus one until end of turn. I'll be honest, I don't love the design of this card. Like, I wish it turned into some other thing, but I think green-white is probably the best color pair to take advantage of a creature land in my cube because I have things like Knight of the Reliquary, Elvish Reclaimer, and white is the color that is often going wide where this Anthem effect would have the biggest impact. So I think it's worth testing only because it gives me a viable creature land in that slot because let's be honest, during Wildwood would not cut it in the Bun Magic Cube, even though you have some affection for it. You know, I gotta be honest, I've totally forgot about the, them continuing this cycle and I, w I want these in my cube all as in. well, but there's like there's 10 new creature lands. I need to figure out what I'm doing here. Maybe the answer is I should just throw in these plus the ones from the previous set and just see what happens. And then cut from there. And yeah. then cut. Yeah. Moving up the list as I get a little more interested in these cards, we have Tishana's Tidebender. Two and a blue for a 3-2 creature merfolk wizard with flash. When it enters the battlefield, counter up to one target activated or triggered ability. If an ability of an artifact, creature, or planeswalker is countered this way, that permanent loses all abilities for as long as Tishana's Tidebender remains on the battlefield. And it does have reminder text, mana abilities can't be targeted, which is relevant. I already had one person say, hey, here's an answer to Field of the Dead, but it's not. You can target the make a zombie ability, but it will not then remove the ability of Field of the Dead for the rest of the time it remains in play because it only removes abilities permanently from artifacts, creatures, or planeswalkers. It's kind of like a Phyrexian Revoker-esque card with flash and a decent body it's an interesting piece of disruption like to me this is kind of similar to like a vendillion click uh, obviously it's doing something very different but it's like a flash disruptive threat that can both apply pressure and also take your opponent off their strategy a little bit i don't like this as much as vendillion click because it doesn't have flying and because i think this countering an ability effect is much swingier like in some board states there will be nothing of value to counter you basically have a three two with flash in some board states, this will be incredible. You'll counter, like, a Ultimate of a Planeswalker, or you'll counter a Activation of Retrofitter Foundry and shut off the Retrofitter Foundry for the rest of the game. Like, you'll do something that really is impactful, and that swinginess I'm not as interested in as the, like, raw flexibility of something like Vendillion Click. Yeah, it's an interesting card. It is... I think this is in a similar camp where what it does is fairly intuitive. It's like, I'm turning off that now, uh, but there are a lot of weird cases, and it yes. does take a lot of words to make it make that work you will have to reread this a couple times to figure out does this shut off exactly the way i want it to shut off and it also it does shut off mana abilities so if you can target a non-mana ability let's say for example someone animates their demir key rune does it does it target mana abilities it doesn't target mana abilities but it turns off all abilities of that permanent i see what you're saying so, so for mana example ability plus another ability right lose if someone turns yes. their demir key rune and goes to activate it and turn it into a creature you can flash into sinus tie bender counter that activated ability and then all the abilities of that key rune are gone, including mana abilities, as long as Tidebender is in yeah, play. Yeah, that's confusing. Tidebinder, sorry, not Tidebender. So it's definitely a little tricky in how it plays, and it's down here at the bottom of the cards I'm interested in because of that reason. I like flash disruptive threats. I don't know if this particular disruption is exactly what I'm looking for. Then we have a pretty pushed uncommon, I think. Helping Hand is one white mana for a sorcery. Return target creature card with mana value three or less from your graveyard to the battlefield tapped. This is white on Earth, but without cycling and putting the thing into play tapped. I don't think it's controversial to say that in almost any environment, white is better suited to take advantage of an unearth ability than black is inherently. 
though the way that unearthsies play in my own cube is almost always unearthing a non-black creature. It's unearthing something in the color that black is paired with. I love unearth. It's probably one of my like favorite cards in my cube for a variety of reasons. I love the modality of it. And it's this card that has the ability to be really efficient. If you get back a three drop for one mana, that is a huge tempo swing. And especially in decks that are like build around decks with creatures like young pyromancers, like the Mardu pyromancer deck uh, is where I really love unearth because you have these creatures that are small, but they have a ton of build around value. And now you have a thing that will proc your pyromancers and also get them back uh, at the same time, giving you effectively additional copies of Young Pyromancer or Third Path Iconoclast or whatever. Seems very relevant that I can get back Monastery Mentor. It can get back Monastery Mentor. It can get back Clarion Spirit. These cards that care about you also casting more spells like Helping Hand. The reason it's so low on the list is that the lack of cycling is obviously a cost compared to Unearth. And I think coming back to the battlefield tapped, while it won't actually matter a lot of the time because what you're going to get back a lot of the time, at least in the use case I'm most excited about for my cube, is going to be a Monastery Mentor or a Clarion Spirit or something you otherwise don't really want to be blocking with because you want to be protecting this like build-around value engine. It's like a thing you have to remember that sometimes is really going to matter. And you'd be like, well, I would have stabilized right now, except this brings something back to the battlefield tapped, which is just kind of a bummer. Yeah, is that just like a nerf to... to- tune the power level of this or is there some other specific interaction that that would be problematic with uh maybe there's something in the set specifically i mean is that uncommon so like these are gonna be running around limited and i think yeah. it'll be quite scary i don't know what the limited format is gonna look like i don't really play limited these days but the raw rate of this card is very good so yeah it could be something to balance it in the limited format i don't think it would be there to balance it for eternal play because we've printed unearths and other style effects before i guess it's been a long time since unearth wasn't standard which is something but i don't know if the card just brought it back to the battlefield I'd be really excited about it and probably one of the cards I'm most excited about from the set. And that tap has just kind of bummed me out a little bit. I will probably still try it because I do love the role that Unearth plays in deck building in my cube so much and getting back a high value three drop in the Pyromancer style deck. Or it's worth noting in the Collected Company deck, which also effectively cares about three drops, right? Like all these cards want you to pair them with three drops for the greatest value, whether it's Collected Company, Unearth, or Helping Hand. And that's a nice through line between all these similar effects across the entire cube. Next up, we have a new instant speed removal spell in white. It's Get Lost. One and a white for an instant. Destroy target creature, enchantment, or planeswalker. Its controller creates two map tokens. That's a weird card. It is very weird. It's very much in line of the tradition of white removal spells that give your opponent something back. Yes, it's the Fateful Absence or... Soul Partition Divine or Gambit. Divine Gambit or Winds of Abandon, right? It's it's like in this space where white's color pie these days is it's allowed to like essentially trade resources more than just like straight up remove things, right? I think this is probably the best version of this kind of card we've gotten for a couple of reasons. It does hit creatures, enchantments, and planeswalkers, which is better than almost all the other cards we've just talked about. It is still two mana, which is the right cost for this. And importantly... The map tokens are going to be fully irrelevant on an empty board. If they don't have a creature, they literally can't do anything with them. You can't just use a map token to surveil. You have to have a target for it, correct? Exactly. And it does have to be a creature you control. So it's not even like you can, in a pinch, make your opponent's creature explore just so you can control the top of your deck and hopefully draw something good. So in a cube like mine, where there is a ton of removal, the games are relatively small, the boards are relatively clear most of the time. This will oftentimes be like pretty hard removal, right? Compared to something like Faithful Absence, with just always lets them draw a card regardless of what they're doing. If they have extra mana, here they would need to have a creature in play to get benefit off of these map tokens. So it's weird. 
And I don't love the idea of having to like keep a bunch of extra map tokens around and I give you two tokens when I exile your thing. It just feels clunky. And also like it does kind of have blowout potential. Like if they do have a board, if they're the aggro opponent and they have a bunch of like creature tokens floating around and you're forced to get lost something and then they can turn these map tokens into like major value, that's going to be kind of a bummer too. Are there ways to like make a creature indestructible so you still get the map tokens, but you don't lose your creature? Not in my cube. Okay. Not in my cube that we're not that aren't face up. Like you could do it with Season Hollow Blade or Guardian of Banalia, right, but yeah. that would be known, so your opponent would make that choice knowingly to cast it into that. So yeah, the art's cool. I think it's powerful. Frankly, I don't need another powerful removal spell in white. This is maybe a sidebar, but we should talk about Soul Partition sometime, because this is a card mm-hmm. that I was like tentatively excited about. I got a lot of flack from the listeners that were telling me that card was trash and no one should ever play it. And I watched so many people, well, two people. I watched two people at KubeCon. <laughs> two is people. Two is people. I watched two people at KubeCon put on a clinic with this card and do some really awesome stuff with it. So I am much higher on Soul Partition after KubeCon than I was going into it. And uh, I think everyone was wrong, except for me. <laughs> but <laughs> Bold statement. So anyway, it's not like it's a space where I'm desperately looking to get more removal into that slot in my cube. So it's kind of middling for me. Next up is Jade Light Spelunker. X and a green for a 1-1 Merfolk Scout. When Jade Light Spelunker enters the battlefield, it explores X times. Okay, so we do kind of have an Explore X. But it's not, not Explore X. Really. It just explores X times the same way that it could, you know. It's not a keyword with a number. Yeah. You could just explore as many times as you want. This is just a scalable Jade Light Ranger, right? The only difference between this and Jade Light Ranger is that Jade Light Ranger's base rate is a 2-1 instead of a 1-1. So if you cast this for X equals 2, it's like one power worse than Jade Light Ranger. In exchange, you get all the flexibility of casting on X equals 1 or having a huge late game mana sink, which will give you a ton of card selection. Like if you cast this for 6 or 7, you're going to draw all the lands off the top of your deck. I mean, I guess worst case scenario, the top card you see is a non-land you really want to draw. And yeah, so you just so keep like, it there. I, and you, I will look at this six times. You look at it six times, you make a 7-7, seven, seven, and you say, well, my next draw is good. But I think it'll be really interesting, like mid to late game value of just cleaning off the top of your deck and getting to what you want. It's also possible in a... I do have Uro and Hogak in my cube right now, and it's entirely possible this could be like a good self-mill enabler yeah. where you're like, I'm going to bid no matter what it is, it's going to the graveyard because I'm just digging for Hogak or I'm digging for Uro. So I'm interested in this card. I think yeah, it's that, a cool... That seems like where it's coolest because like I think the worst case is just like at what point do I hit a card that's good enough that I want to stop this train which I think is why we didn't see in the original Exelon or in this Exelon cards with a lot of cards with explored twice or explore three times because it is kind of a bummer to be like well there's the card I want so I'll now reveal it four times like it just <laughs> it feels kind of silly it being on one card I think is totally reasonable and I think this card will be an interesting scalable threat I, I like that it it's just a scalable vanilla threat, right? It just makes a big creature if you want in the late game. Or it could possibly shape your draws and, you know, kind of clean things up if you dump a bunch of mana into it. So, And the flavor's there. This guy can just descend very quickly. Yes, the flavor is there. And also, this is a big block of text. Like we've talked about cards with big blocks of text on them, but Jade Light Ranger is a known card. And this, I think, very clearly, if you know Jade Light Ranger, you can shortcut this in your head very, very quickly and know exactly what it does. All right, we're getting towards cards I'm a little more optimistic about with... Well, let me check the pronunciation image here. <laughs> Anim Pakal, Thousandth Moon. This is one red-white for a 1-2 legendary creature human soldier. Whenever you attack with one or more non-gnome creatures, put a plus one, plus one counter on Anim Pakal, then create X-1-1 colorless gnome artifact creature tokens that are tapped and attacking, where X is the number of plus one, plus one counters on Anim Pakal. Okay, look, here's the deal. I've, you had me at non-gnome. <laughs> this is... 
This, I mean, this is actually kind of a pattern we're noticing, right? This is, again, I think, functionally a pretty simple effect, but it is written in a complicated way to make it work in the rules, right? This is somewhere between a... It reminds me of Krenko Tin Street Kingpin. Well, I was going to say, this is somewhere between Krenko Tin Street Kingpin and Adeline Resplendent Cathar. Uh, it's got the Adeline effect of it triggering the turn it comes into play. It itself doesn't have to attack. You can attack with right. any other non-gnome creature, and I don't think there's a single any gnome. Any non-gnomes. I don't think there's a single gnome in my whole ass cube, so I think a, that's any, fine. Any changelings? No changelings. So... Any other creature attacks is going to trigger it. So you get that immediate value, which I think is one of the biggest things that makes Adeline so much better than Brimass, right? Like, yeah. Adeline, I think, is still one of the premier... Also the four toughness. Also the... Brimass has four toughness. Oh, right. Uh, well, also the vigilant. His vigilance. Brimass has vigilance. The mm. one difference on... I mean, it gets bigger. It gets big. That's it gets bigger was, in the late game. working up to that it gets huge. But, um, but no, I think when Adeline was spoiled, a lot of people were like, ah, it seems like a trade-off, right? It's like a little better than Brimaz because it can be bigger and can make a token the first turn it comes into play, but it's also a little worse because it can be smaller on an empty board. And what we discovered through some playtesting is that it's way, way, way better than Brimaz. That immediate value is so huge. And this has a very similar play pattern and then also just gets bigger over the course of every turn, right? You're going to make more and more tokens every turn in a Krenko-style way. So I have often kind of wished there was a Adeline or Rabblemaster or Krenko style card in exactly red-white that would be a strong enough pool to get people to play red-white aggro. Turns out what you were missing? Gnomes. Gnomes. Uh, and this is exactly what I have kind of always vaguely wished for. So I am would be remiss not to give it a like solid college try in testing. I think the biggest cost is that kind of clunky paragraph we just read and had to like figure out <laughs> and like Takes a little take parsing. Yeah. But I think it's powerful. I think it's cool. I'm into it. I got four left here. Number four is Sentinel of the Nameless City. Two and a green for a 3-4 creature merfolk warrior scout with vigilance. And when it enters the battlefield or attacks, create a map token. This is just disgusting raw stats. Just really, really messed up. I mean, three mana, three, four vigilance is now kind of the base rate we get for like a green rare. Three mana, three, four vigilance with upside. I'm thinking of... And, and even only one green pip. That is the difference here, is that in the past, they have been one green-green for similar cards, and now it's just two and a green. And when it enters the battlefield or attacks, you make a map token. That's, like, ongoing card advantage. It's ongoing card selection. Like, this makes J-Light Ranger look like absolute poo-poo butt trash. Like, this is so much better than J-Light Ranger. It's not even funny. I don't love the unique token. I'm not sure how many things we're going to end up having with map tokens. I'm not sure how resonant or common map tokens are going to be in Magic more broadly. When I think about someone coming to draft my cube for the first time... I know they're going to know what treasure tokens are. Treasure tokens are all over the place now. I know they're going to know what clue tokens are. Those are all over the place now. Map tokens may become ubiquitous like that, or they may become a little more esoteric, like blood tokens or gold tokens or whatever that people don't know from immediate reading and have to like think about. And I think my long-term affinity for this card will depend, I think, on how much the average player showing up to Cube Draft Night knows what a map token does off the top of their head. The ceiling on this is kind of nuts. The I guess floor on it is can, kind of nuts. Everything can, about it is kind of nuts. You can only activate maps at sorcery speed, which yeah. means you can attack with this potentially as a 4 or 5 after you've had 3 lands the turn before, 3 mana the turn before. You can't activate both the maps while this is attacking. Right, because the one you make when it attacks, you won't be able to activate till sorcery speed at the end of combat. So that's kind of a bummer. Boo. That, that kind of is a drag on this card. Yeah, uh, it's, it's really strong, and I'm always looking for good three drops for all the reasons I just mentioned for the unearth reasons, the collected company reasons, the turn one mana dork into turn two powerful three drop play patterns. I'd like my ramp decks to have. And then to be honest, I'm not thrilled with a lot of my three drops. Like I've, I've played a lot over the years. They've been in and out and I'm, 
there's a, a couple slots in my cube I'm very happy with the offerings at, and like three drops are ones I'm always kind of cycling through the new hotness. And this is the new hotness. I'm excited to try it out. The card I'm third most excited about for the Bun Magic Cube is Inti Seneschal of the Sun. Do you know what Seneschal is? Is that a is that a word I should know? Am I pronouncing that correctly? It's not on my pronunciation guide here for uh, for Lost Caverns of Ixalan. Let's Google it. While you're Googling that, I will give the rules text. It is one and a red for a 2-2 legendary creature, Human Knight. Whenever you attack, you may discard a card. When you do, put a plus one, plus one counter on target attacking creature. It gains trample until end of turn. And whenever you discard one or more cards, exile the top card of your library. You may play that card until your next end step. Do you have a ruling on the word Seneschal? Seems to be some kind of person in a position of supervising. Great. This card, I think, is really pushed. It also touches on a couple of thematic build around the synergistic effects. It has discarding abilities. I don't have a major discard theme in my cube, but it's not like I have a madness deck or a reanimator deck. I think if you do, this card is going to be fantastic for your environment. Here you'd be discarding like a land to recur later with Titania or Renin Six, or you'd be discarding maybe Anya's Ravager. That's the that's the best you could do in the Bun Magic Cube. But the fact that this, like Adeline and like Anim Pakal, does trigger the turn you play it if you already had a creature in play, right? You don't have to attack with this thing. You can attack with any creature. So turn one, you play a one drop. Turn two, you play Inti. You attack with that one drop. You can immediately rummage Gets and bigger. put a plus one, plus one counter on that creature and give it trample, which is huge. And also impulsive draw. Like you're rummaging and you're also getting an impulsive draw until your, until your end step. It just seems really powerful. And I think it's powerful in a cool way that is easy to remove. You just shock it. You get it out of there. It's gone. But you get that value the turn you played if you already have creatures in play. And it just kind of churns through your library and gives you lots of options. So those are all things I really like out of my two drops. Yeah, I mean, this card seems really nuts. Like, I mean, if we just shorthand it to, it's a two mana, three, three that does a rummage. And also, and also an impulsive draw. A whole bunch of- yeah, even on an empty board, if you get to untap with it, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. And comparing this to something like, uh, what's that... Um, I can picture the art so clearly in my head. What's that two drop that a lot of people play that when it attacks, it lets you rummage um, and then you can cast a card you discarded from exile this turn? It's, he's got books. Yeah. What's that guy? Um, conspiracy. Is it just conspiracy, conspiracy theorist. theorist? Yeah. Conspiracy theorist. Comparing this to conspiracy theorist, this just absolutely blows conspiracy theorist out of the water. Like you got to pay mana to activate conspiracy theorist ability. You got to untap with it. And then... It lets you cast the card you discarded, but this lets you draw a card and also cast another card off the top of your library until end of turn. It just absolutely smokes it. No, so not the same card. What? They are different cards. Different, different level of... Uh... Yes. I was like, yeah, I know they're not the same <laughs> card. What are you talking about? Different cards are different cards. All right. The card I'm second most excited about... I actually don't know why this is. Maybe if you've been paying more attention, you know. Why is there one adventure card in this set? I believe it's because he... Didn't planeswalk, but maybe went through the omen paths, and he is from Eldraine, so flavorfully he is bringing his adventure mechanic. But he's just a normal card in the set. He's not like some weird bonus sheet thing or something. There's I think just it's just a normal yeah, card with but he's an important set. story guy. Great. Well, important story guy is the card I'm second most excited about. This is Kellen Daring Traveler. It's a creature with adventure. The creature side is one and a white for a legendary creature, Human Fairy Scout. Whenever Kellen Daring Traveler attacks, reveal the top card of your library. If it's a creature card with mana value 3 or less, put it into your hand. Otherwise, you may put it into your graveyard. And it's a 2-3. That, as a base rate, is already very strong. And I've already mentioned a couple times on this review my affinity for cards that care about 3 drops or less. And how that's a nice, consistent thread throughout my cube. So, that's just a 2-mana 2-3 that you untap with and start generating card advantage. 
On top of that, it has a adventure, which is a sorcery called Journey On, for one green mana, which creates X map tokens, where X is one plus the number of opponents who control an artifact. Here's some annoying multiplayer templating. It's going to make you a map token or two map tokens if your opponent controls an artifact in the Button Magic Cube when you're playing one-on-one, which is gravy, I would say. I think you'll very happily play this card in a mono-white deck and never worry about that adventure because its front side is that good. These cards are pushed. Yeah, and it's a fairy for Spell Stutter Sprite for some weird deck that I hope somebody oh, drafts right. someday. Oh, uh, yeah. He's a fairy. Neat. I love that part in Snow Crash where hero protagonist meets uh, important story guy. If you uh, know me at all and you looked at this spoiler, then you know the card I'm most excited about. It's a slam dunk from this set, and it's Bitter Triumph. It's the card Anthony already mentioned for the regular cube. The Infernal Grasp that deals you three instead of two, but you can also discard a card to offset that life loss, and it can also destroy Planeswalkers. For all that I have tried to cut arbitrary restriction removal spells from my cube there are still some that i am stuck on because of just needing to run a density of removal that i'm happy with and i had an opponent the last time we played the bun magic cube that was playing against me i had a really cool blue black luris deck that i was in love with i love blue luris and my opponent was very frustrated (laughs) playing against luris and getting beaten up by it at the end of the game revealed that he had both snuff out and cast down in his hand snuff out can destroy non-black creatures and cast down can destroy non-legendary creatures and i was like haha sorry <laughs> that's a big that's bummer that's how you design the cube just for that that's a big bummer uh so yeah this will be coming in and cast down will be is it cast i like get cast out and cast down confused you know what i'm talking about the black cast spell not cast the not the oblivion is ring the white one cycling. because you're being cast out of the city great cast down's gonna get cut bitter triumph is gonna come in and uh, I will continue to try and run the density and kind of removal I want without arbitrary restrictions. Thus concludes the cards I'm testing for the Bun Magic Cube. Great. Should we talk about the Turbo Cube? Turbo time. Okay. Uh, the Turbo Cube is a totally normal cube with one small twist, which is that all spells and activated abilities cost two generic mana less. It gets weird. Uh, so let's just talk about a couple cards. First up is Confounding Riddle. This is two and a blue for an instant. Choose one, look at the top four cards of your library, put one of them into your hand and the rest into your graveyard. Counter target spell unless this controller pays four. So even though you get a discount on the spell, this will effectively cost one blue. Players do still have to pay the four mana and usually they can't because it's probably turn one or two. This card is just going to be a slightly more flexible version of a Convolute or something like that. It's uh, Counter spells haven't been super high performing in this environment so i'm happy to have something that comes with the opportunity to instead of using it as a counter spell get a little bit of card selection next up help me with this pronunciation here kutzeel's flanker this is two and a white zeal yeah kutzeel's flanker this is two and a white for a three one with flash uh it's a cat warrior when it enters the battlefield choose one put a one counter on this creature for each creature that left the battlefield under your control this turn you gain two life and scry two or the important part i think is going to be exile target player's graveyard i don't expect that first this part to be, could be kind of important the first too, part could maybe. be relevant a lot well. of game pieces move threat. around in one turn in this cube there's always rectangles going places yeah so as we saw actually at cubecon very clearly this cube kind of fell across the the divide of play some form of like grixis puzzly turbo combo or green white hate bears and i think that this isn't the top tier green white hate bear but it is a reasonable cat you know what's silly i was so excited to get the cubecon data for my cube i also looked at it for the regular cube i actually totally forgot the turbo cube was even at cubecon this year and forgot to look at the deck list was that what it was it was like the best decks were grixis 
draw my entire deck and like blow you up with some sort of win con or hate bears. Yeah, I haven't looked at it super carefully, but that seemed like the pretty clear trend from a from a cl- quick look. So I wasn't looking at this originally, but since you brought this up, I think Tishana's Tidebinder could be an interesting card here as well. Uh, yeah, there I are think just so. a lot of cards like Retrofitter Foundry, which we mentioned. Aetherflux Reservoir. Aetherflux Reservoir. This does, yeah, t- gets rid of the tr- triggered abilities as well. So, yeah, this could be a really, really good piece against of Reservoir. Yeah, I like good it a Good against lot. a lot of those sort of repetitive things, just like shutting down loops. Also, which we just talked about, Inti, Seneschal of the Sun. This card is just going to be nuts here. There are a lot of cards that have cycling for one or two generic mana, so you can potentially just cast this, cycle three or four cards, and suddenly you're up a bunch of cards. I just want to play this in a deck with Bergy, <laughs> God of Storytelling. It never occurred to me that it just triggered on discarding Oh yeah, generically. It just triggers whenever you discard stuff. Yeah. Reading, reading the card <clears> explains <throat> the card. I was like, I was like, yeah, this seems okay in the Turbo Cube, but I don't get it. No, you're going to play it, and you're just going to impulsive draw half your deck. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. that's... Mm-hmm. Sick. So, yeah, that's going to be turbo time. Is that it? That's it. Easy. Am I missing something? Probably. I'm just, I don't think you're missing anything. I didn't do a close read. I'm just curious, did you think about buried treasure? This is two mana, so zero mana, for a treasure, so you can sacrifice an out of mana of any color. It also has five exile from your graveyard to discover five activated as a sorcery. I did. So just having a, a lotus petal essentially wasn't super appealing to me. There are plenty of uh, opportunities. Like I could dig deeper to get more of those. I think that paying three mana is just too much. Even though it gives you one of those three mana. Yes. Okay. We could try it. I don't know. I'm, I'm. Sometimes I have definitely ended turns and been like, well, I got extra mana and I ran out of stuff to do. And That is a good point, yeah. I feel like this is like essentially a Lotus Petal plus a Mana Sink plus all the things that matters for the Turbo Cube. Like I cast an Artifact Spell and I put a thing in the graveyard. Like those things that matter for all of the yeah. enablers. Uh, the, the best thing to do with this will be to cast it and then cast Paradoxical Outcome and pick it up. Yes. It is not great and it's also not like exciting. It's like it would yeah. be a Mana Sink if I like sputtered out on what I was trying to do. Yeah. And there's a lot of weird whiffs on the Discover 5, probably. Yeah. Or maybe you just hit something that, like, is a big cycling thing. Now you have a big creature in play. I don't know. It could be cool. Could be. I'll think about it. I am considering two cards for the Degenerate Microcube. And most sets, I don't have any cards for the Degenerate Microcube. So that's kind of interesting. I said one and a half earlier. Uh, I'll explain the half in a second. But the one card I am definitely going to try out. Should we explain what is a Degenerate Microcube? Yeah, I definitely should. This is a cube that I designed that you draft in two packs of 12. And then you build a 15 card deck. And within those restrictions, I have made it as broken as I possibly can. So you get to do flash combos. You get to do... Mishra's Workshop into Trinisphere. You get to do all kinds of disgusting stuff that really Maybe you shouldn't be allowed to do. Dark Depths and Mishra's Workshop. So the card that I definitely want to test from this set is Galta Stampede Tyrant. Five, green, green, green. Ignore that part. It's not never going to matter. For a legendary creature, Elder Dinosaur, it's a 12-12 with Trample, and when it enters the battlefield, put any number of creature cards from your hand onto the battlefield. That does not say if you cast it. It just says when it enters the battlefield, you do that. So... This is actually a really interesting reanimator target because all of the other flash and reanimator cards in the degenerate microcube, the reason they're good is that they stand alone, right? Like the whole deck is just about putting this one thing into play and the rest of the cards are just like ways to protect and enable that. This doesn't work that way because you need other creatures for this to be good, especially with flash. I mean, with reanimate, sure, maybe a 12-12 trample will just get there. In this cube, it probably won't. You probably want a bunch of abilities attached to it. But I love the idea of a different kind of deck that's just like, 
yeah, I've got six reanimator targets in my deck, and I'm just going to flash in Galta on turn one and then drop a bunch of Eldrazi and all the other stuff into play. <laughs> I'm just imagining the Stampede, which is, you know, a bunch of small dinosaurs, but instead it's Emrakul and Gristlebrand, and it's <laughs> yes. just a Stampede. <laughs> yes, it's Emer- Stampede of, of the uh, multiverse's scariest reanimator threats. So I'm not super confident in this because it does require that you draft a very weird different kind of deck. And the way I think it could work is... Something that comes up in this cube quite a bit is you have run extra reanimator threats that you just plan to exile to like pitch spells if you don't need them. So the idea is hopefully you have your best reanimator threat. If you don't, then you just can fall back on Sphinx of the Steel Wind, or you can pitch Sphinx of the Steel Wind to Grief or to Solitude or to Force of Will or whatever. This one doesn't pitch too much because it's mono green, but if you had a deck that was full of pitch spells, gold, blue or black reanimator targets, and Galta... You could definitely have some really splashy plays, which I'm kind of interested in. So I want to try that out. It's also just, you know, a cool, splashy giant dinosaur. And it, this is the cube to try it out in. So I'm, I'm going to do it for sure. I'm going to check right now. Is there a cool printing of it, too? I don't think I've looked at all the printings yet. Oh, no. There's just two. And There's all. only two. There's only two. And so I don't love weird. either of them. There's, there's supposed to be nine printings yeah, in every what, card now. What? Where's the, the version that's, like, written in dinosaur text? And uh... So that's the one card. The have a card, I think, is actually an even better fit for the cube. But... I loathe the art, and I don't know if I can bring myself to run it. This is Hoverstone Pilgrim. It is an uncommon 5 generic mana for a 2-5 artifact creature golem with flying in ward 2, and it has an activated ability. Pay 2 mana, put target card from a graveyard onto the bottom of its owner's library. What don't you like about this little guy? This art sucks. Sorry to uh, Artist Izzy. No offense to you personally. I just don't. This is not my vibe. If you don't know the Degenerate Microcube, you might not understand why this fits here, and there are two points to take note of. One point is that it is an artifact, and as an artifact, it can be cast with Mishra's Workshop, which means even though it says five in the top right corner, it's kind of only three, because you're going to very often have a land that taps for three of that mana. Putting a five drop into play is not hard at all for these shops decks. It's also a threat that can end the game, and the Ward 2 is also better here because people have few lands in their decks, so sometimes the Ward costs can totally lock out specific removal spells because you just don't have enough mana in your deck to pay the Ward on top of the cost of the spell. And the activated ability here to put a card from the graveyard on the bottom of its owner's library is huge when your library is completely expended, which I didn't mention that you don't lose to drawing from an empty library in this cube. Well, that's important. That's pretty important, but you also do lose because you don't have any more cards and if you're, you're also not advantaged if you are not drawing a card every turn and so this just basically saying tutor whatever card from your graveyard into your hand and your draw step for two is very relevant i should test this i don't like the art it bums me out but it's a really good fit and i've wanted like one more utility threat for the shops deck and this is probably the perfect one you'll get over it look look at his face maybe we'll see all right That was a long episode, longer than I think we intended, but uh, that's all of our thoughts on the Lost Caverns of Ixalan. We should have mentioned it up top, but we're we're bad at this, and we'll mention now that we have a survey out for you all to fill out to tell us what you're most interested in from this set. It is at luckypaper.co slash survey slash LCI, or you can just go to the homepage and click on the banner, or you can just go to the show notes where it will be prominently linked. All the instructions for how to fill that out are there. That's actually my preferred way, I think, to look at the new set, too. I just really like the page you built for it where I can go down and look at all the cards and then click the ones I care about, and then at the bottom it has a place for me to rate them and, like, you know, record my findings about them. Even if we didn't have this podcast, I would still do this for myself every set just as a way to remember what my initial impressions of cards were because uh, it is easy to forget in the future. There's a big set. There's a lot of words in it. A lot of words in this set and a lot of words in this podcast. 
And speaking of this podcast, that's it for this episode. All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty here in Baltimore, Maryland. All the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast, and this podcast is produced by Anthony and I thinking really hard about magic cards and then speaking into microphones about it. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks, Andy. 